everyone. Welcome back to Runaway Eve. I'm so glad you're here. Today we are doing something that we have not done, according to my notes, since like February or March. My notes say that I finished scripting the episode in February, so I probably recorded it in March. So it's been a while. We are revisiting our good friend Josh Harris, who kissed dating goodbye and in turn influenced an entire generation of young people to follow in his, a 19-year-old virgin who had zero life experience, his footsteps, and also kiss dating goodbye and as I've mentioned before I was actually not one of those people I never read this book as a kid Um, to my knowledge my brother didn't read it either so thank you to our parents for not forcing that upon us so I'm reading it as an adult as a deconstructing deconstructed uh, I don't even know what I consider myself these days agnostic adult I'm reading this for the first time, and it's been a wild ride. So we are going to just jump into that today. But before I do, I actually do want to mention that Josh Harris's ex-wife, Shannon, uh, wrote her own book. It is called The Woman They Wanted, Shattering the Illusion of the Good Christian Wife. My mother, who I love very much, pre-ordered it for me, and I absolutely cannot wait. It is supposed to come, um, now. I think it actually just came out, so I should be getting it any time, I think. I'm really excited. Uh, when I get it, I will read it as fast as I can, which is not very fast, uh, as I'm learning because of my ADHD brain. It takes me forever to read a book. So when I get through it, or as I'm going through it, either alongside I Kiss Dating Goodbye or after, I haven't really decided the timeline for that yet, I will be talking through Shannon's book on this, sh- on, on this show as well, and I'm really excited about it. I absolutely cannot wait to read this book. So thank you to my mom. I don't know if she listens. I tell her not to listen because I say bad words a lot, <laughs> but... I don't know if she listens or not. Mom, if you're listening, thank you so much for for doing that for me. I cannot wait. So with that being said, let's jump into the next installment of I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And we are on chapter six, which is titled The Direction of Purity. So Josh starts this chapter with a story that has potentially a lot of implications and depending on your own personal experience and context might make you feel things, might make you feel weird things. So Josh says, while in high school, I attended a weekend church retreat in which we discussed the topic of sexual purity. Mm. Okay. Okay. Well, right off the bat, that's kind of weird. These kids were isolated from their parents, presumably overnight, because he said it's for a weekend, uh, possibly in an unfamiliar location, where they were made to talk about sex with adults who, again, are not their parents. Got it. 
He goes on to say, during one session, our pastor asked all of us students to anonymously fill out survey cards that would let him know, quote, how far kids in the group had gone physically. Josh explains that the pastor gave them a scale from one through ten with different sexual activities ranging from a quick kiss to intercourse assigned a number. The pastor asked them to write down the highest number they had reached. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) So at this presumably overnight retreat, while isolated from their parents, church leadership are asking children about what they've done sexually. And based on what Josh said about this little ranking system, they want to know specifics. I also want to point out that he says during one session, which implies there were multiple sessions, multiple sessions where adults had conversations with children about sex, including specifics on what the children had already done while isolated from the children's parents overnight. This is all super normal and totally okay. So then Josh goes on to talk about a conversation with a couple friends as he was leaving the room after dropping his card in a basket. And first, let me point out that they wrote down specifics on how far they'd gone sexually on cards and then left the cards for these adults to do who knows what with. But I also want to point out that Josh goes on to be so incredibly dramatic about this whole situation, but like not even in the right way. Like he doesn't seem to have any problem whatsoever with adults asking him, a child, about his sexual experiences. But listen to this. After dropping my card into a basket, I filed out of the classroom with two friends. I'll never forget the ensuing conversation. One of my buddies looked over at the other and said with a wink, so how high did you score, man? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They did not talk like that. (laughs) I guarantee you they did not talk like that. Um, Laughing, my other friend said he had reached eight, almost nine. I wonder what those numbers correlated with. Aren't there only supposed to be four bases, but in this scenario there are ten? Um, Anyway, then these two guys proceeded to name the particular girls in the youth group with whom they had reached certain numbers. And uh, first of all, this conversation sounds fake. Or is this how teen boys in the 90s talked to each other? I maybe it is. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't fucking know. But anyway, Josh doesn't elaborate on why this is a conversation he will never forget. It sounds like idiot boys being idiot boys to me, but something clearly stuck with Josh in a really big way. But do we think what stuck with him was them naming names in a culture that demonizes female sexuality? Probably not, but I guess out of fairness, I can't make that assumption. Josh uses this anecdote to convey that While Christians talk about the importance of sexual purity, so many of them don't actually embody these ideals. Or, more specifically, they don't take it seriously enough. He says, We esteem purity too little and desire it too late. Even when we try to assert its importance, we render our words meaningless by our contradictory actions. 
And I get the feeling that he really felt like he channeled all the theologians he looked up to with that sentence. It sounds so scoldy. And he continues that sentiment with another big statement. If we were honest with ourselves, many of us would admit that we're not really interested in purity at all. Instead, we feel satisfied by meeting the minimum requirements, content with spending our time in the gray areas, flirting with darkness, and never daring to step into the light of righteousness. And a couple points here. One, I think it's really interesting that, again, Josh was a very, very young person. I'm pretty sure he was 19, maybe 20, maybe 21 when he wrote this book. So he was very young. He was very inexperienced in, in every essence of that, of that word within this context. When you listen to, to the anecdotes and examples that he chooses to use in his book, it's the kids, it's, the, it's his peers, it's the people around him, his age, his experience level that he is pointing out having a problem with, that he is pointing out, you know, not taking their purity seriously or whatever. And I feel like that is probably why this book was so successful, because it was finally an example of the person, like, like he was part of the target audience. He was the person that leaders in this culture desperately wanted to control the sexuality of. And he was the one preaching all of this to his peers. He wasn't some 50-year-old pastor preaching at young kids. He was the young kid preaching at other young kids. So I think that I think that really has something to do with why this book was so successful and why so many people latched onto it and why it sparked this entire movement for better or worse, mostly worst. And I also just want to say because he was barely an adult when he wrote this and was fully indoctrinated in a high control religion, I don't expect him to have been able to even begin seeing it this way, but you know, he says this thing about flirting with darkness um, by spending time in sexual gray areas, but that's not darkness, that's human nature. Humans are sexual creatures. It's basic biology, but also sex is pleasurable and fun for us, or at least it can and should be. We, and I'm using that collectively to mean humans, aren't interested in purity because it's really fucking hard to deny one of the most basic aspects of our humanity for many of us. And I know I'm generalizing a lot here because sexuality is a spectrum, but sexual abstinence is hard because most humans want to fuck and fucking is a very natural and normal part of being a human. But I want to focus in on the part about meeting the minimum requirements because kind of has a point. He says, we feel satisfied by meeting the minimum requirements. In the next paragraph, he says, like countless Christians, my two friends foolishly viewed purity and impurity as separated by a fixed point. As long as they didn't cross the line and go all the way, they believed they were still pure. And this is where I agree with him. 
I mean, this is why there's that whole Christian anal sex joke. And like, yes, that's a thing. Google it if you've never heard that before. But seriously, we live in a society where, generally speaking, the definition of sex is heterosexual PNV penetration, or more broadly, the penetration of one body part with a dick, if we're extending the definition to also include men who have sex with men. According to popular belief, any other activity simply isn't sex. Now, personally, I think that's bullshit, and I will always do whatever I can to help folks reframe their thinking on what constitutes sex. Ask any of my close friends. I wax poetic about this pretty much anytime sex comes up in conversation. Sex can and should be defined in so many different ways, and virginity is a social construct. It is not real. It is not a biological thing. It's, it's fake. It's all made up. But I digress. All that being said, I agree with Josh's sentiment here in that so many Christians think they are remaining pure because they haven't had that penetrative hetero intercourse yet. Like Josh, I would argue that this is bullshit, just obviously from a very different perspective. Josh closes this section by stating, True purity, however, is a direction, a persistent, determined pursuit of righteousness. This direction starts in the heart, and we express it in a lifestyle that flees opportunities for compromise. And to be clear, I think this idea of biblical purity is bullshit and serves no purpose other than to control young people, specifically young women and girls. But again, he's kind of right. If you're going to buy into this way of thinking, buy into it. Don't make excuses and seek out loopholes so you can still get your dick wet. So in the next section, Josh tells the story of David and his evolution from faithful shepherd to, well, adulterous murderer. Specifically, he discusses David's impropriety with the married Bathsheba. As Josh tells it, David's descent into impurity starts with choosing not to go into battle with his army. From there, according to Josh, he had this pent-up energy that he wasn't exerting murdering people in battle, so he instead paced on his rooftop and, like, (laughs) the world would be a better place if we paced on our rooftops instead of went to war when we were frustrated, but that's a very different conversation. But anyway, while pacing on his roof, he sees this woman, Bathsheba, who happened to be the wife of one of David's soldiers who was away at the battle that David had chosen to ditch. David is so taken by Bathsheba's beauty, or just horny and frustrated as he happens to see her naked or whatever. Again, we're sexual creatures. He calls for her and an affair ensues. Bathsheba gets pregnant and David's solution is to have her husband killed. And the point of all this is the following. Josh says, as you can see from David's story, impurity isn't something we step into suddenly. It happens when we lose our focus on God. Often in dating relationships, impurity starts long before the moments of passion in back seats. Jesus fucking Christ, gross. Instead, it begins in our hearts, in our motivations and attitudes. Basically, Josh's point is that purity isn't the concept of crossing some arbitrary line. It is the pursuit of righteousness. 
Also, Josh wants you to know that this pursuit should be constant. He brings up the book of Proverbs in which King Solomon uses imagery of an adulteress to symbolize impurity. Josh writes, Though King Solomon wrote these words hundreds of years ago, this woman continues to lurk all around us today. She snares the innocent with promises of pleasure, but she truly desires nothing but her victim's destruction. She has ruined countless lives, both male and female, with her treachery. Throughout history, she has crippled the righteous. And again, this is all just so fucking dramatic. This whole section is just so fucking dramatic. Like, yes, Josh, humans do bad things. Yes, Josh, humans are easily tempted and tend to make stupid decisions based on what they thought they wanted. I'm not sure why we're acting like this is the end of the world when it's pretty much, again, just human nature. Don't get me wrong, I'm well aware that falling into temptation and making bad choices can absolutely be detrimental and really bad things can happen. But listen to this. No matter how good impurities victims may be or how holy they've been in the past, if they set foot in her house, they speed towards death on an expressway with no exits. God damn, it really is no wonder ex-evangelicals are so fucked up. No matter how good of a person you are, if you give into temptations, you are speeding towards death. What the fuck? He continues the expressway analogy by saying this is how Christians in dating relationships feel when the physical behavior is accelerating. They feel like they are on a freeway having passed their exit, speeding along until they can hopefully exit somewhere else. Or something like that. It's a clunky metaphor at best. He says, How many Christians in dating relationships have felt the same way as they struggle with accelerating physical involvement? They want to exit, but their own sinful passion takes them further and further from God's will. And it's like... Or they can simply take the next exit. That's how freeways work. I guess turnpikes are a little different. There are these freeways in like in Florida. I think they're called turnpikes that are like really long and there's like no traffic because there's no exits for like 10 miles at a time. But even on something like that, there's still another exit further down the road. I I don't understand. I've said this before, but I swear to God, Christians are the most dramatic, oh my God, the sky is falling people ever. I hate that I spent so many years of my life in this mindset. And now I'm just like, who cares if I miss my exit? There are other off ramps and possibly misadventure to be had. And if we go a little too far with someone we probably shouldn't have, as long as we heal from that in whatever way we need to, why would we, why should we beat ourselves up about it? I've made bad decisions with the wrong people all throughout my adulthood, some that really fucked me up. I don't think I'm a bad person because of those experiences, though, and fuck any religion that tries to tell you that you are. So then Josh says, how do you avoid the on-ramp of impurity? How do you escape the spirit of adultery? Here's the answer. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Proverbs 7.25 Ah, yes. Just don't. Saying a lot without saying anything at all is a theme of this book, but this is just hilarious. How do you avoid temptation? Why, 
you avoid temptation by avoiding temptation. Duh. But really, he explains that if you claim to want to live a pure life, you have to make sure you are actively acting in ways that live out a pure life. Fair enough, I guess. He expands upon this in the bulk of the chapter. His next section is another list, and he introduces it like this. If we desire purity, we have to fight for it. This means adjusting our attitudes and changing our lifestyles. The following pointers will help us maintain a direction of purity with both our hearts and our feet. Let's dive into his pointers. Number one, respect the deep significance of physical intimacy. As you can imagine, this point is basically Josh regurgitating what he's been saying this whole time, that sex is sacred or whatever for married couples, so we're not supposed to do it if we aren't married. And I actually saw this really amazing tweet a couple weeks ago now, um, and it was basically like, unmarried people don't owe your God abstinence. (laughs) And I was just like, damn. Holy shit. No, we do not. Um, But anyway, you're not supposed to have sex if you aren't married. Whatever. Um, And look, you either believe that or you don't. You either buy into it or you don't. Waking up and realizing that sex is not inherently bad or evil or sinful and that it is, in fact, a basic human act that anyone who wants to can do was me red-pilling myself and I have never looked back. And I would encourage you to do the same, but sex can be tricky for everyone, religiously indoctrinated or not. So if this is a journey that you are interested in embarking on and you've never really thought about it before, had these conversations before, please just approach it with a lot of grace for yourself and any potential partners. Um, There is this note of we're better than you that I want to mention. He explains that quote, non-Christians see sex as nothing more than a bodily function and do it whenever and with whoever they want. And um, first of all, sex is a bodily function. (laughs) So and again, it's a basic aspect of human nature. You can't apologetics your way out of that. It is what it is. Uh, But anyway, um, let me just point out that this conflation of religious beliefs with morality and ethicality because that's what he's doing here, is very common in evangelical Christianity and is gross and at this point, quite frankly, hilarious for a lot of reasons I'm not going to get into, but that are very obvious. This idea that sex is no big deal to non-Christians to the point that they do it whenever they want and with whoever they want is also ridiculous. As I just mentioned, sex can be tricky for everyone, for anyone. There is a stigma around sex and pleasure in our society that exists even outside of religious contexts. So right off the bat, this statement is completely wrong and borderline offensive. He says, while this lifestyle is an affront to biblical values, many Christians treat lesser expressions of physical intimacy with the same lack of respect. They view kissing, holding or fondling, fuck that word, gross, another person as no big deal while we may hold higher standards than our pagan neighbors. (laughs) Oh, 
Josh. Oh, you tragic little idiot. Uh, while we may hold higher standards than our pagan neighbors, I'm afraid we, too, have lost sight of the deeper significance of sexual intimacy. A couple things here. First, again, this idea that Christians are inherently better than non-Christians, as in higher character, stronger morals, and more ethical, which we all know is bullshit. But second, Josh is arguing, and he gets deeper into it in the next couple paragraphs, that any physical contact within a romantic context is sinful. Yes, kissing. Yes, holding hands. It's all bad unless you're married. And I'm thinking, as I so often do, of the guy in my church, darling of the pod, who I have mentioned so many times, uh, who was praised for his commitment to purity. He was very open about quite literally saving his first kiss for his wedding day. He was held up as this example of the godliest, most pure a young man can be. Then his wedding day came and he married the girl nearly 10 years younger than him who he groomed. But good news, we have a dose of misogyny in this point too. Listen to this. Men tend to see the physical as more of an experience, a good female friend once told me. This girl's fake. I'm going <laughs> to just right off the bat allegedly conspiracy don't sue me this girl did not exist this good female friend is not real a girl's point of view is very different she explained kissing and making out means something very precious and deep to a woman she said it is our way of giving our trust our love our heart to the man we love it leaves us very vulnerable and <laughs> Let me take a moment to argue what I really hope is the obvious here. Like, not necessarily. A person's approach and response to sex is not gendered and depends on so many factors. Sex is an experience that is different for everyone and trying to sum it up like this is ridiculous. Especially because Josh doesn't expand on this statement or conversation at all. He threw this comment in, but doesn't say anything else about it. Are we supposed to take this as gospel truth? Who is his friend? What are her qualifications for making a blanket statement like this? Why are they generalizing so much? What about non-binary folks? And I'm just kidding about that last one. They obviously don't exist in this, in this world, in this context. So again, basically, Josh's point here is that any form of physical contact should be treated as special and saved for marriage, just like the act of sex itself. He closes this point with this. This honor for the sacredness of sexuality between husband and wife starts now, not just after the wedding day. Respect for the institution of marriage should motivate us to protect it from violation while we're single. We can do this by recognizing the deep significance of sexual intimacy at any level and refusing to steal these privileges before marriage. And... Yeah, this is all pretty straightforward, and like I said, you either believe it or you don't, and I am so glad I don't anymore, and just as a reminder, 
if you are not married, you do not owe someone else's God abstinence. Point blank, period. So number two, set your standards too high. And on the surface, I don't hate this. Have high standards and keep your standards high. I think that's important for any aspect of life, not just romantic relationships. But what does Josh mean here? Eight words into this section, he invokes Billy Graham, so there's that. And I'll be honest, what he's saying here, I have no idea if it's true, and I'm just not going to waste time reading about the intricacies of Billy Graham's life, so sorry. But anyway... Josh relays that there came a time when Billy Graham became concerned over the public's distrust of evangelists and came to the realization that it was their lack of integrity, specifically sexually, that people did not like. And truthfully, I think acknowledging this mistrust because of lack of integrity is refreshingly self-aware, but also like very misdirected in this particular case. But can you anticipate his suggestion for handling this? Is it to encourage men to have more respect for their partners? To take the commitment of marriage more seriously or just generally be better? Of course not. This is what Josh says. To combat this, he and the close circle of men who ran the Crusades avoided opportunities to be alone with women who weren't their wives. So this is where this concept started. Oh, this is where Mike Pence got it. Josh continues with the following. Think about this for a moment. What an inconvenience. Did these men really fear that they'd commit adultery the moment they found themselves alone with a woman? Weren't they going a little too far? We'll let history answer this question for us. In the last 50 years, what has shaken and demoralized the church as much as the immorality of Christian leaders? What believer can hold his head high when the scandalous conduct of many televangelists is mentioned? But even unbelievers honor the name of Billy Graham. No, they don't. Mr. Graham has earned the respect of the world. No, he hasn't. By his faithfulness and integrity. What integrity? How did Billy Graham do this when so many others failed? He set his standards too high. He went above and beyond the call of righteousness. And there is a lot to unpack here, and I'm not trying to discuss Billy Graham at any length today, so we'll leave it at that. But you get his point and why he's bringing this up. Basically, Josh wants us to do what we can to prevent any opportunity to sin from even developing. And within this context, he says for him, and I would argue what he's suggesting for others as well, this means rejecting traditional dating. And he's clear to explain that it's not because he doesn't think he could handle traditional dating without giving in to sin, but if he adheres to what Billy Graham preached, he should avoid the temptation and opportunity to sin altogether. Josh says that God says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2.22 I won't stick around to see how much temptation I can take. God is not impressed with my ability to stand up to sin. He's more impressed by the obedience I show when I run from it. And is that even true? (laughs) Just like I don't think God ranks sins, I also don't think he ranks goodness either. But I'm not a 19-year-old virgin with an overinflated ego writing about sex, so what the fuck do I know? 
Josh also says this applies to couples who are engaged and that until they have physically walked down the aisle, they should not act like their bodies belong to each other. He acknowledges that you might be thinking he's crazy and that he's gone too far, but he wants you to know that even the most innocuous form of sexual expression, even a kiss, can be dangerous. And yes, he uses the word dangerous. He says, let me explain why I believe this. Physical interaction encourages us to start something we're not supposed to finish. Awakening desires we're not allowed to consummate. Turning on passions we have to turn off. What foolishness. The Bible tells us the path of sin, particularly in regard to the wrong use of our sexuality, is like a highway to the grave. We shouldn't get on it and then try to stop before we arrive at the destination. God tells us to stay off that highway completely. Uh, Right. As he previously mentioned, premarital sex apparently leads straight to death. And I'm sorry, this is just so fucking ridiculous. (laughs) Why are they so afraid of single people fucking? Why are they so afraid of single people exploring their sexuality and having an active sex life? I understand in Christianity the need to connect everything back to God, God's plan, God's design, whatever. But this incessant need to redefine sex from a literal biological expression of our humanity into something God designed only for a specific group of people is fucking weird. Stop policing sex, for fuck's sake. And in case you forgot for a second that he is specifically defining sex as hetero, PNV, penetration, he reminds you here very explicitly. Listen to this. God designed our sexuality to operate within the protection and commitment of marriage. God made sex to end in full consummation, every step along the path of pure sexuality from an initial glance between husband and wife to a kiss potentially leads towards physical oneness. In marriage, things are supposed to progress. Things are allowed to get, quote, out of hand. (laughs) First, I want to point out that he says God made sex to end in full consummation, We understand what he means by that, yes? I'm sorry to be crass, but he's saying that God defines sex as a dude coming inside his wife. If you've been listening to me for a while, you are hopefully starting to understand that sex can mean a lot of things and mean different things to different people. If there is a God that, quote, designed sex, they designed it to be a spectrum of activity, expression, and emotion. But Again, leave it to the sexless evangelical teenager to have absolutely zero nuance. And second, I just want to say that referring to sex as, quote, things getting out of hand, specifically in the context of a hetero evangelical marriage, is the absolute least sexy thing I have ever heard in my life. It actually sounds exactly like how a sexless evangelical teenager would describe sex. Go figure. He says that people who fuck when they aren't married are abusing God's gift of sex. And I'll be honest, I think he lost the plot a bit in this section, but he attempts to tie it all together in the last sentence by saying, set your standards too high. You will never regret purity. Remember, Josh is not a great writer. (laughs) Number three, make the purity of others your priority. 
And I need you to know that I was reading this and making my notes in public. I was at a coffee place I really love. And when I read that heading, I actually said, oh my God, no, (laughs) out loud. (laughs) Because I already knew where this was heading and you probably do too. The first line of this section reads, one of the best ways to maintain a pure life is to watch out for the purity of others. And I've also said this a lot before, but no, I refuse to be responsible for another person's actions. He says that while protecting the purity of your same-sex friends is important, the protection you can give friends of the opposite sex is invaluable. Because, you know, everyone is straight in Josh's world. That's really the least of our issues here, though, so let's keep reading. He separates this section into two subsections, the guy's responsibility and the girl's responsibility. Let's start with the guy's responsibility because, to my surprise, it's like twice as long as the girl's part. So right off the bat, he completely infantilizes women. He says, guys, it's time we stood up to defend the honor and righteousness of our sisters. We need to stop acting like hunters. God. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's like you can only be two things. You're either <laughs> You're either defending her honor or you're a fucking hunter. <laughs> I fucking can't. Um anyway, I'm sorry. We need to stop acting like hunters trying to catch girls and <laughs> ew. <laughs> Oh my god, the way that they, (laughs) you know, evangelical young men really should have nothing to worry about because the way that they talk about dating, um, they're not good at it. Uh, Anyway, sorry, let me collect myself. We need to stop acting like hunters, trying to catch girls, and begin seeing ourselves as warriors standing guard over them. Men out there, are you a hunter or are you a warrior? (laughs) Jesus Christ. This is such a gross patriarchal idea. Like, yeah, don't get me wrong. Let's not be predators. Oh, I'm sorry, hunters. But let me be clear. What we need from you stops there. Because if men weren't so fucking predatory women wouldn't need to be protected. We don't need you to stand guard and defend our honor. This isn't fucking medieval times. And I don't mean the time period. I literally mean the restaurant because isn't that what the show is all about? Like defending the queen's honor or some shit? I don't know. I went there only once in my entire lifetime in New Jersey when I was 14 and I fucking hated it. I don't want to eat with my hands. Gross. Uh... Anyway, don't worry, it gets worse. I just want to read you this whole passage. How do we do this? First, we must realize that girls don't struggle with the same temptations we struggle with. We wrestle more with our sex drives while girls struggle more with their emotions. We can help guard their hearts by being sincere and honest in our communication. We need to swear off flirtatiousness and refuse to play games and lead them on. We have to go out of our way to make sure nothing we say or do stirs up inappropriate feelings or expectations. Okay, okay, (laughs) 
okay. Okay. Where do I start? Um, at the top, I guess. I want to know where he got this information from. Josh doesn't cite sources. Um, I don't think he actually used any. But he, sexless virgin 19-year-old Christian, wants you to know with authority that men are driven by sexual desire and women are driven by their emotions. I swear to God, this weird assumption among evangelical men that women just aren't horny and don't like sex is super telling. Like, they really don't realize they're telling on themselves, do they? But anyway, women struggle with their emotions because we are silly, irrational dumbasses that apparently never get horny on our own, and men need to step in and protect us. Now, what I'm not going to do is fault Josh for having this grand idea that men can be nicer and can generally do better. So can women. So can any human interacting with another human. Be sincere and honest. Don't play games and lead people on. That's good advice for anyone because we all get carried away from time to time. But I want to focus on this line for a moment. We have to go out of our way to make sure nothing we say or do stirs up inappropriate feelings or expectations. And again, this is super patriarchal. It's giving dads have to protect their daughter's virginity, which is one of the grossest things about uh, not just evangelical Christianity. A lot of different religions have that same kind of mindset, and it's disgusting. Um, But anyway, uh, it's super patriarchal because in Josh's world, women only ever feel sexual when emotions are involved. He truly believes that it's the responsibility of men to keep women's emotions in check. And I want to set aside dunking on Josh for how stupid this is for one minute and just say, this poor baby, these poor babies. Can you imagine being 14 years old in a church youth group being told that it's your responsibility to keep not only your own actions, emotions, and behaviors in check, but that you are also responsible for managing your female friends' emotions and expectations? That's a lot. And just like I refused to be responsible for the actions of others, Josh should have refused to be responsible for the actions of others, too. Josh name drops someone called Matt Canlis, calls him a good friend, and tells a story about him guarding his now wife's purity. That was a gross sentence, but here we are. I googled Matt Canlis, and he and his wife uh, actually don't seem terrible. They have an interesting story, and from what I read, albeit very briefly, it seems like they've done some pretty cool things. So I'm not going to say too much about Matt Canlis. I don't know enough about him to make any comments. So, you know, take all of this with any grain of salt you need to. Um, Regardless of all of that, though, the story at hand is weird. So let's jump into that specifically. Basically, Matt and Julie, his now, his, uh, now wife, were super attracted to each other, but Julie felt called to focus on God and her own life. So rather than pursue her anyway, Matt waited. And this story is pretty innocuous on the surface, considering some of the other bullshit in this book. But what's really weird to me is how the woman's agency is completely removed. So what if Matt pursued her? 
if she was in a season of her life where she needed to focus on other things and didn't have time for a relationship, could she not just have said no? Or maybe she did, and that's why Matt went into the season of waiting and, quote, protecting her purity or whatever. But either way, why is it framed as his decision, something that he actively did? Again, it's just so infantilizing and really condescending and honestly just creepy to talk about your relationship that way. And I, I just, I don't like it. Josh closes out this section with a line that makes me want to put a pen through my eye. He says, I want to be the kind of friend to whom girls' future husbands could one day say, thank you for standing watch over my wife. <laughs> this is happening a lot in this one i'm so sorry i'm just i thank you for standing watch over wipe <laughs> over my wife's heart thank you for guarding her purity thank you for standing watch over my wife's heart thank you for guarding her purity for fuck's sake i wonder how many uh how many okay let me see if i can get this right i wonder how many of josh's former female friends current husbands reached out to him to thank him for standing watch over um their now wives josh's former female friends hearts and protecting their purity this is just so weird this is this is the kind of mental gymnastics that people in this culture do willingly and it's wild to me it's just it's wild to me do you want to protect your female friends men be nice to them treat them with respect treat them like fucking humans there you go end of list end of story i don't understand why all of this is necessary i i just i just don't get it i don't get it uh i don't get it um, but, but now let's talk about what Josh calls the girl's responsibility. Basically, don't be a hoe. And I'm being obnoxiously pointed here, but I'm not kidding. So in, in so many words, uh, watch what you wear, watch what you do, watch what you say. He compares us to the quote wayward woman he talked about earlier, uh, in the chapter. And how was he barely not a child when he wrote this? Cause he sounds like an 80 year old man. He says it's our job to make sure our brothers aren't led astray by our charms because our glances and actions can easily stir up lust. He says, you may not realize this, but we guys most commonly struggle with our eyes. I think many girls are innocently unaware. God. I think many girls are innocently unaware of the difficulty a guy has in remaining pure when looking at a girl who is dressed immodestly. Well, Jesus had something to say about that. I'm pretty sure it had something to do with like gouging out your eyes. Um, so, yeah. So so Josh's point here is basically you you fucking idiot. Men are visual creatures. Men can't help themselves around you if they think you're dressed immodestly. Again, if they think you're dressed immodestly. The way this was written makes my skin crawl. How stupid does he think women are? This is the shit that is drilled into our brains from like age four and on. We know. We get it. He says he doesn't want to dictate what you choose to wear. Laughable. He says he would be blessed if women considered his ones when shopping for clothes. 
pathetic. He says, yes, guys are responsible for maintaining self-control, but you can help by refusing to wear clothing designed to attract attention to your body. Josh, go fuck yourself. Again, your actions, your behavior are not my responsibility. First of all, why are you looking at your friends? Why are you looking at your female friends and lusting after them? Why are you concerned with how they're dressed? It should have literally nothing to do with you. Um, But maybe, since you all seem to think that men are the only ones with sex drives and are the only ones who are visually stimulated, you should focus on policing yourselves and leave women the fuck alone. None of this, we need to protect the girls in our lives bullshit. No. Focus on your own shitty behavior instead of pretending to be the knight in shining armor. Um, The rest of this section is just the same old shit, and all I really have to say is that if you require additional fabric to see the women around you as human, it is you with the problem, babe. You. I guess that's the end of his, uh, his pointers for purity. I don't even remember what he called it, but yeah, that was the last one. So he ends this chapter with a long and winding diatribe about purity and how while God does indeed love the impure, impurity keeps them away from God. I don't know, something like that. He lost the plot again, but uh, I do have a few things I want to say before I before I end this. He starts with this. In closing, let me ask you this. Can you picture it? Can you see the beauty of purity? And just, no, I don't. I can't. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I believe a person should be mentally, emotionally, and physically prepared before they start having sex and exploring their sexuality, especially young people. But I simply do not see any benefit in denying a basic aspect of the human existence for those that want to experience it. Further, I only see it as damaging to treat this basic aspect of the human existence as something bad, dirty, and sinful unless it happens in a way that meets the conditions of this random religion. He says that purity takes work... But we shouldn't see this work as a burden because it brings us closer to God, or, more accurately, it keeps us from being removed from God. He says, God's love for the impure does not cease, but their ability to enjoy his love does. For in our impurity we are turned from him. Sin and its defilement are never found near his throne. They can only gain advantage when we turn away from his radiance. Turned from God's presence, we are completely unprotected from the marauding destruction of sin. Without purity, God's gift of sexuality becomes a dangerous game. A relationship devoid of purity is soon reduced to nothing more than two bodies grasping at and demanding pleasure. That sounds hot. Sorry. Without purity, the mind becomes a slave to depravity tossed about by every sinful craving and imagination. That also sounds hot. But but realistically, though, to me, this is, is really grasping at straws. Honestly, it's desperately trying to persuade people into believing that their basic human nature is bad, which, to be fair, is like the main tenet of Christianity. Um, it's threatening in a way. This is like, don't worry, God still loves you, but 
can you even be content with that love if you're sinning? And it's like, yes. I mean, they say all of this and then they also try to emphasize the fact that everyone sins. And that's the reason why the whole like Jesus died on the cross thing. Uh, Because yes, because if I believe that whole Jesus died for my sins thing, why wouldn't I? This is just a really fucking weird passage to me because it really does just feel so desperate. And if we're already here at this place of desperation, where does this book go next? It's just strange to me that he is trying so hard to convince people that they want this. And that's, that's, uh, that's really what it comes down to here for me. That's the tone that I'm getting from all of this. And it's really weird. It's, it's really weird. It's desperate. And it's, it doesn't really make much sense. And it's, it's uncomfy. Um, but anyway, that we got through chapter six, that was chapter six. I don't really have much more to say. I just, actually I do. I I always have something to say. This idea that he brought up so much in this chapter about how men are visual creatures, men are sexual creatures, men have to go out of their way to, you know, not lust after women and to prevent themselves from inadvertently like tricking a woman into feeling some type of way emotionally, which is what makes her want sex or whatever. And like I made that joke about how it's it's funny how, when how they tell on themselves by ma- by you know making it clear that they have this assumption that women don't enjoy sex but where is the space in this culture for women to explore their sexuality that's not the point of this podcast although lately like we've been we've been talking about this we've been talking about the concept of biblical sexology And it's just like, where is the space for women to explore their sexuality? Because a lot of Christians, a lot of Christian men operate under this assumption that women are not sexual creatures, that women don't really have much of a sex drive unless emotions are involved. And that's just simply not true for a lot of people. But again, it's like it's 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 a an idea that's that's not and shouldn't be gendered because everyone is so different and everyone's experience is so different. Everyone's sexuality is so different. Sexuality is a spectrum. And it's just, it's such an interesting conversation to me. And it's one that I really look forward to exploring further. So with that, that was I Kiss Dating Goodbye, chapter six. Uh, we will be diving into chapter seven at some point, hopefully some point soon. We have another episode on uh, biblical sexology that should be dropping pretty soon, hopefully. And I have some other ideas coming up. I'm really excited. As always, thank you to everyone who is uh, listening and sharing this podcast with your friends. I appreciate all the reviews. Thank you so much. And mm, this feels a little unsettled, but that's life sometimes. Sometimes you don't get closure, so... (laughs) With that, I have other stuff to do today, so I'm going to go ahead and end it right here. I love you all so much, and I will, as always, catch you in the next one. Bye!